Hello and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 894. On this edition of the podcast, Greg Edwards and Meg Rowley discuss our brand new Top 50 Free Agents list, now live on Fangraphs.com. Craig and Meg go over what was especially tricky about this year's rankings, what spending may look like in the winter, and the Cardinals declining Colton Wong's option for 2021. I think that it's very surprising that the Cardinals would do this, particularly when, you know, it's a situation where it makes their team worse. Right. Following that, Jay Jaffe joins Dan Zimborski to discuss the Dodgers World Series victory. Jay recently wrote about growing up a Dodgers fan, and this championship was a special one for many reasons. He and Dan discussed the Blake Snell decision in Game 6, the Justin Turner snafu, and just how great it is to follow a team with Mookie Betts. The chance to watch him on a daily basis throughout the season, and particularly throughout the postseason, it's just like, I don't understand how any team that has Mookie Betts would ever not want to have Mookie Betts. Fangraphs Audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. Your memberships and donations allow us to offer things like the Top 50 Free Agents list and everything else we do over at Fangraphs.com, and we are truly grateful. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. This is Meg Rowley, Managing Editor of Fangraphs. I'm moonlighting on Fangraphs Audio again, and I am joined today by Craig Edwards, the primary architect, not the sole author, but the primary architect of this year's Top 50 Free Agents post. Craig, how are you? I'm doing well. It's been a month. It's been a month. That is sure a succinct way of describing it. You had a a very unique challenge this year. We have done a a version of this post for a long, long time at Fangraphs, initially spearheaded by Dave Cameron, and then after his departure to the Padres by Kylie McDaniel. And you have assumed the reins this year, and you are doing it in what might be one of the least predictable, murkiest free agent markets we have seen in a long, long time. And so I thought it would be illuminating for our readers to hear from you on the process of putting this list together and what you think some of the factors are going to be for free agents as they hit the market this winter. And so with that in mind, I guess we can start with what was the most difficult part of assembling this list for you, Craig? I'd say the the most difficult part is definitely the contracts, because I think, you know, objectively, you can go through the players. And I mean, I guess I should, you know, point out that the list is subjective, and that I was the person who ranked them based on my preference of these free agents. But then you have to go in and, and sort of guess or estimate what you think their contracts will be. And it certainly seems like looking at what a player got last year or two years ago or three years ago isn't going to be very helpful because teams certainly appear to be slashing cuts, slashing payroll and uh, on the, you know, the front office side and the player side as much as they possibly can. So trying to determine where the salaries are going to end out is the most difficult part, the ranking is not easy, but it's relatively easy to trying to determine like what kind of market there's going to be for for some of these players, especially after you get past the first, you know, five or 10, when you have a lot of similar players. And, you know, we've seen those types of players not get the contracts they're expecting in very, you know, normal free free agent years, because teams have sort of, you know, clamped down on 
on averages to slightly below average players in, in free agency and, and sort of waited them out and then just, uh, you know, sort of picked from the pool once, you know, the more desirable players were done. And they will probably do that this year, but it could be even worse if there are more and more teams basically just sitting things out. I mean, we saw last year when the Yankees are in on Garrett Cole, you know, he goes for $300 million and there was, you know, the Dodgers were, didn't sign anyone, but were obviously in on players. And, you know, that tends to drive things up and we don't yet know how many teams are, are going to be sitting things out. And it's, it's going to be a lot of teams probably, and it's going to really, really hurt the mid-level players who, who are trying to get paid some of them, you know, for really the first time in terms of getting a multi-year deal. We'll kind of circle back on some of those guys in a second, but I think, you know, for folks who have not yet read the intro that you wrote to this piece or some of your prior work on this, the pandemic is obviously exacerbating the state of payrolls across the league, but you've noted in the past that this coming off season was always going to be one that saw a dip in payrolls across baseball, and we're likely to see that you know, exacerbated in some ways by the pandemic and also by guys like Mookie Betts who signed long-term extensions and thus won't be part of this market and bring up its averages. But before we get to the pandemic, what were some of the other factors at play in this particular free agent class? Well, I think that, you know, when you talk about payroll in general, the slow free agent years, uh, not necessarily last year, but the two and three years before that, there weren't as many long-term deals signed. There, there aren't guys more than you know a dozen or so who are still even under contract for next season who signed you know after the 2017-2018 season. So you have payroll going artificially lower, not because of anything that's happening this season, but because there aren't as many of those longer-term contracts from previous seasons. And as we've seen in you know the past you know half decade, teams aren't signing players to replace those players and replace right. those contracts, and so. Then you add in the fact that this was going to be the final year. Well, it is the final year of the current CBA, and owners tend to gear up for that by reducing payroll as much as possible. So we were already going to see maybe something like a half a billion dollars less in payroll for 2021 uh, before the, the pandemic even starts. And now, you know, you've got teams that obviously didn't get as much revenue as they were hoping for and and. They may not have those same types of revenues next season. They could just decide to, to, to make further cuts if they want to. They don't have to, but they certainly can. And when you look at the areas where teams can get new players uh, during the winter, you know, there's obviously trade and then there's free agency for the most part. And when you have the non-tender deadline coming up in December right. for the arbitration eligible players, you're going to see a lot more teams either you know trade away those guys for nothing or simply not tender them contracts and then add further to the free agents and potentially further depress all the salaries for, for the guys in the middle. Because if, if you can get a cheaper player that maybe isn't quite as good but is close, that then that's what teams are going to do. And then so if you can trade for a guy without giving up prospects and maybe take on a moderate salary for one of those teams that is really cutting things, then you're going to do that. And those contracts, you know, are probably going to be, they might have a year left or two years left, you know, so then if a, a free agent is seeking a three or four year deal, 
they may not get that that offer coming. And I, I think that you know up and down the free agent list, you have a lot of players that are, that are going to be hurt by those circumstances. Yeah, I think that the emerging consensus is that this will be a particularly brutal non-tender deadline, that we will see a lot of players who might in a normal year have been tendered a contract without really thinking about it twice, suddenly finding themselves on the free market. And there will certainly be teams that perhaps wait out that deadline in anticipation of being able to scoop up talent that is less expensive than some of the the other marquee agents on this list. Let's talk about some of those. I want to pull back the curtain briefly, Craig, and talk about some of the surprises to you. You generated this list and received feedback on it from our staff and from a couple of team folks, but it had some surprises even after we had locked the rankings. Craig, how surprised were you that the Cardinals decided not to retain the services of Colton Wong? Uh, that was that was quite a surprise because he wasn't on the list and we didn't do crowdsourcing for him until, you know, very, very recently. Yes. You know, it's one of those things where if he were on Cleveland or Miami or, I don't know, you know, Pittsburgh and he had a option that cost only eleven and a half more million dollars, we would have said, you know, we should probably crowdsource this guy yeah. because there's a chance that they're not going to pick him up because they're going to try and just let him go and see if they can replace him better. In the past, the Cardinals have not been that type of, of organization. They they generally reward their players unnecessarily in the case of players who are already on their team. You know, I, I think, you know, Matt Carpenter, his contract is, you know, going for another season. He had two years to go, and they just gave him a contract extension. They had done the same with uh, Yadier Molina. They paid Paul Goldschmidt market value, you know, a year before he had ever even played a game in St. Louis. And so I think that it's very surprising that the Cardinals would do this, particularly when, you know, it's a situation where it makes their team worse. You know, I know that you can say, well, Tommy Edmond's going to fill in that role, and the two are comparable players. Well, I mean, Tommy Edmond, you know, was basically the starting third baseman and he's a utility player. And so now Matt Carpenter is the starting third baseman. And, you know, at this point in his career, Matt Carpenter is a below average player. So you have a below average player at third. You maybe have a a decent player now at second, Tommy Edman, but you've lost at third and you've lost in the utility position. And the the Cardinals are, you know, a a couple wins worse because of it. And uh, generally speaking, uh, on a, extra $11 million is is not a lot to pay for that. And it used to be, you know, the the one-year contract is sort of like a, a gold standard. Uh, you never pass those up if you're right. if you're an MLB owner because there's no, there's no long-term hurt. But that wasn't the case with Wong, who, if you look back over the past three years, I think that uh, among position players, he's, you know, like first or second right there with, with Paul DeYoung. You know, he's he's been one of the best, if not better, position players that the Cardinals have had over the last few years. And at 30 years old, uh, he projects for for fairly close to that production uh, next season. So, I mean, it is, it's, a very, it's a very big surprise. Let's talk about some of the, the guys at the top of the market. I'm curious how you think that they are going to progress. Obviously, our readers can check out the post, but if you haven't yet, Let's talk about guys like Real Muto, Springer, 
Bauer and Semyon, do you think that these guys are going to be in some ways largely immune from the sort of downtrends that we have seen or anticipate in this offseason? Or do you think that even at the top of the market, we might end up with contracts that that go below what we're anticipating? And I guess my follow-up to that would be, is that going to be the result of forces like the pandemic and an overall sort of desire to trim payroll? Or is there something about this particular grouping at the top on an individual player basis that might might result in them sort of underperforming market expectations? I mean, I think for Real Muto and Springer, I, I don't think that they're they're going to be as affected. You know, Real Muto is is coming from a team who still still really needs him. So you yeah. have you start off with one suitor there and then you add in the fact that you know, the Mets maybe have a new owner who might be interested in spending. The Yankees might have a need for catcher. And you, you only need a couple of big suitors to get the, the contract that, that you desire. Um, yeah. Springer's hurt a little bit because he's he's a little bit older, but his production is, is you know, been very good over the years. So he should still get, you know, a, a very good contract, not as good as he would have gotten a season ago if the Astros hadn't kept him down for a couple of weeks more than six years ago, but he'll still end up okay. A guy like Simeon, I think, is a guy who who's more likely to get hurt in, in the current market and just by not having played a full season because he really, he had a good year two years ago, but he had a breakout season a year ago and following that up with another breakout and you're you're talking about, you know, maybe $100 million more than, than I projected him for, but because you know, we only had a small season and his first two weeks were dreadful. And then he played the rest of the season in the playoffs, just like he had played a year ago in it. And you don't know how much those first two weeks are going to factor in when you look at his bottom line and you see, well, he's good, but he, but he's not great. And right. he's also hurt a little bit by the fact that, you know, this year and next year, there's there's a lot of good shortstops out there. So there's there's teams that already have their shortstops and then there's teams that you know might say well I don't I don't need to go get Marcus Simeon because I can get Didi Gregorius or Andrelton Simmons uh, for much lower cost or you know I can wait until next season and then Javier Baez, Trevor Story, Francisco Lindor you know all those guys are, are heading to free agency so you have the teams that already employ those guys aren't going to be interested in a shortstop and then you have other teams that aren't going to be interested in tying up a shortstop long-term if they they think that they might be in on one of those guys and might pursue more of a stopgap type. I think Ozuna is going to do much better than, than he did a, a year ago. And, yeah. you know, he obviously had the season to, to sort of prove it. I think one of the more interesting cases is, is DJ LeMahieu because he plays a position where there's, you know, we just saw Colton Wong. The Cardinals let him go over twelve and a half million, over eleven million dollars. I guess the the option was for twelve and a half. But you know, DJ LeMahieu is better than Colton Wong, but how much better? And he's two years older. And are you worried about you know the Yankee Stadium situation? And then if you can go out and get Wong or Jerickson Profar or you know, I think that the way that this this off season is going to shape up we're going to hear a lot about like this guy is good this guy's slightly less good but a lot cheaper and teams are going to flock to the guy who's slightly less good and a lot cheaper and sure. I, I think that that's 
I think once you get to the list where LeMahieu is at on the list, there on down is where you're really going to start seeing a, a depression in, in salaries over what, what these guys would normally get in a normal free agent season. What is your sense of how teams are going to think about the the 60-game sample that we were treated to this year? Like, how seriously do you anticipate them taking that? I imagine that, you know, as we might expect, their analysis is not going to end at here was his triple slash line, so therefore we think X, Y, or Z about it. But how do you anticipate them putting this year's performance into context when you have a guy you know, maybe one like Simeon where there has been sort of an up and down character to his career numbers, or even guys who have been more steady, but perhaps performed slightly under what they were anticipated to when we were coming into a year that didn't have a, a pandemic and had a full 162 games. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're not going to be able to just look at the, the stat line. I mean, you look at a guy like, like Simeon, who he played in seven playoff games, and he got 31 plate appearances. And normally you could just, you know, almost throw that out. That increases his seasonal weighted runs created plus by like, you know, 15, 20 points, I think. I mean, it's, yeah. and that sort of gives you a little bit of perspective on, on just how, what kind of a sample size that, that we're dealing with in terms of the 60 game regular season. I think that they don't necessarily have, they can't look at the past in terms of, you know, what what players have done in seasonally shortened seasons as much and get a good idea and they can't treat it like the player was injured for a hundred games because then you're going to discount more for injury. So I think that, you know, you sort of have to, you have to wait, you know, at least the, not necessarily, not the counting numbers, but you have to wait like your slash line and, and those sorts of numbers a little bit less and, you know, go more for the career average and the aging and, and then, try to build a value from there instead of pretending like what a player did for 60 games, they would have just kept up for 160 games because, you know, we know that that's just not how things go. I mean, Randy Rosarena is not hitting 60 home runs, or at least I don't think that he is. <laughs> it would be pretty exciting. It would give us something to, to enjoy in 2021. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Craig, we've done the difficult work of trying to prognosticate for the offseason that is immediately in front of us. And now I'm going to ask you to do the even more difficult work of prognosticating about an offseason a year from now. Because one approach that free agents in this market may take is to either, if they are extended a qualifying offer, take that qualifying offer in the hopes of having a more predictable market following the 2021 season, or sign a one-year deal with the intent of re-entering the market following the 2021 season. And I suppose that my question is, and this is obviously going to be dependent in large part on the, the player himself and what is motivating that decision. If you have someone like, say, James Paxton, who is hoping to have a healthy year in 2021 and then re-enter the market, that might lead to a very different answer than someone who, say, takes a qualifying offer to have some security this coming season and then and then go from there. But should we be thinking about these two off seasons in concert with one another? And do you anticipate that a CBA negotiation laden winter will be better or worse than a pandemic laden <laughs> winter? Because I, I think that guys are going to have to make decisions with imperfect information about what the state of the market might be a year from now. Yeah, I think that, you know, if there aren't issues with the CBA negotiation, 
and you know i i think that there's a difficult sort of path that 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 needs to needs to happen because the players can't just accept anything and because of you know the losses that generally that that they've taken over the last half decade but certainly from the owner perspective having a cba in place is going to make for a much more fruitful winter for signing free agents but that's true whether the players get a lot of concessions from the owners or not it's you know the it's having the cba that you know makes for right. makes for a little bit more certainty for, on on the owner's part and so if we think that there's going to be a long bad cba negotiation that doesn't get wrapped up until the following february or march or something like that then we're going to see another situation where you know the the same types of guys who are getting squeezed now might be getting squeezed a year from now james paxton probably isn't in that category because you know based on his talent generally uh if he can stay healthy right if he goes out and has a good season next year uh he would really be selling himself short if he signed you know like a two or three year deal for not very much money relatively because if he can go out and do well even if they get to february or march he's still exactly the type of player that would be in very high demand and in in free agency it's it's the guys who are further down the list who don't have the same type of upside or who are maybe getting you know closer to aging themselves out of the game where this offseason might be their last bet to get sort of a a multi-year deal and that's more the difficult situations than the you know the marcelo zuna last year or james paxton this year the guys who can go out and bet on themselves are still going to be in a better off position come next season than if they signed the multi-year deal that doesn't pay as much annually in, in salary Who was the most difficult player on this list for you to rank? Not to determine the contract values, I think we've talked about that, but just in terms of trying to place him within the sort of soup of existing performance, underlying talent, age relative to others who occupy his position. Who was the hardest player for you to just place from a pure ranking perspective? Well, taking out Kim, because, you know, there's just not a whole lot of information in terms of how he will translate to the big leagues i think that there's a lot of sort of you know pitchers who are like fun who are like have you know sort of exciting things about them upside who are available but it's hard to say you know some of these guys could be anywhere from 10 to 40 right like i think marcus stroman is is particularly a guy where i had him fairly high on the list and it's possible that you know, in terms of value, he could be considerably higher. But at the same time, he hasn't pitched since since last season, and, right. and you don't know exactly how that's that's going to play out. So I did have, I did have a, a tough time with, with Marcus Stroman on the pitching side. And I think on the hitting side, a guy like Andleton Simmons mm-hmm. is a little bit difficult because he's a little bit older, but he does have you know that elite fielding skill. But in free agency, fielding doesn't tend to get as much in terms of of salary which i think is is sort of why i have him ranked higher personally compared to guys further down the list who i think will get more money right well craig 
I really appreciate you taking time both to compile these rankings and your Craig's takes, Craig's takes available now on the free agent posting and to chat with your process today. We should note that the timing of the release of this list means that we will not have a complete picture on qualifying offers and we will certainly not know the full extent of opt-outs and club options, although we will update the post as those become clearer and uh, where relevant. But we hope that folks find the list illuminating, even as the market remains murky. And Craig, I want to say thanks for taking some time to chat with me about it today. Thank you. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. I'm here with Dan Zimborski. And we're here to wrap up the 2020 World Series for you. I personally am a little bit on fumes here right now, having stayed up late watching the (laughs) Dodgers beat the Rays. I had a lot of emotions involved because I grew up a Dodger fan and still retain some amount of uh, emotion towards that team, particularly towards Clayton Kershaw. Uh, I wrote a piece called The Dodgers Have Chased the Ghosts Away, kind of discussing what this experience was like watching this World Series and the 32 years since the last time the Dodgers won when I was a college freshman at Brown University back in 1988, and just all the mixed emotions that have intervened over the years. Hi, Dan. Hey, I'm not a Dodger fan. I'm an Orioles fan, so I did not have a particular rooting interest, but I like both teams. They were also arguably the best team in the AL and the best team in the NL, and you don't always get that matchup. So I was cool with whoever winning. All my little hangups were were met, I think. Yeah, I think it was interesting that you know, for all of the hand-wringing that most of us rightly had about the ridiculous 16-team postseason format and the fact that two bad days in a row to start the postseason could send even the, the strongest powerhouse home, we ended up with a match of number one seed versus number one seed, and that for, I believe it's the fifth time in this millennium, the team with the best record in the major leagues won the whole World Series. It's just funny that this weird season has ended in the most normal way possible. Yeah, I mean, no, most normal way possible in, in that regard, although, of course, as soon as as soon as soon the celebration started, the most 2020 of things happened, which was uh, <laughs> Even more 2020. A blatant protocol violation on the part of Justin Turner, who had actually received a positive uh, COVID test result mid-game and was removed in the eighth inning and then was supposed to be isolated and yet somehow made his way back onto the field. I was yeah. shocked at that <laughs> and dismayed and... I know that there's probably just as much verbiage being spilled on that as analyzing the Dodgers' victory, and I don't want to dwell on that subject too long, but it is an elephant in the room that that, that I suppose we have to address. Yeah, it's hard not to talk about it. It, it. It's weird. Baseball had done a reasonable job in recent months, and it's the last game of the year. And then that happens. It, it kind of felt like after like the final quarter of of high school when I was already accepted to my college and I didn't really care about anything anymore. And it kind of felt like that. It's like, whatever, it's the last day. It's the final day. We're just putting all the chairs up on the desks and leaving for the day. So nobody right. worry it's, about yeah. anything. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's almost as though major league baseball said, well, we're done. Can't sue us. You know, when the season's over, whatever you guys do now is, is your problem, not ours. And it takes these backsies. Yeah. And I think, the the lack of any adults in the room, I think, is is kind of shocking. At the same time, 
I don't think that it's you know the job of Andrew Friedman or Dave Roberts to babysit a 35 year old grown ass man you know in in the midst of what's going to be the highlight of their professional careers you know it's it's not like they personally had to oversee <laughs> you know chaining him to the to the locker room or something like that or, or yeah Turner's or, not a little kid he yeah it was his responsibility then I love blaming Rob Manford for things because usually there's a good reason to blame him for everything but it's hard really to the press release was kind of you know a little two-sided today but I think it was Turner's responsibility to take care of it. I know it's an exciting moment, but you know, this whole year in, you know, around the world is about people, you know, we have to give up our exciting moments, weddings, right. you know, birthday parties and yeah, world series victories. One thing I would like to see MLB do is be a little transparent about the whole timeline because we've gotten about five different iterations of what, Turner knew when he knew it, when the Dodgers knew, when baseball knew. And it's really, really hard to get a straight answer. You could tell Ken Rosenthal was struggling to try to get, you know, a consistent reply from the stakeholders in baseball. Right. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I thought that Ken did a good job of capturing the chaos in, in, in the moment there because Ken is Ken. He's great. He's that's what he does. He's a reporter. I thought that Bradford Davis did a good job of, of trying to outline the uh, the order of events and, and has done a great job of chronicling the gap between what MLB has said it's going to do and what MLB has done throughout this whole pandemic season. That's Bradford Davis of the uh, New York Daily News. I don't know. It's, it's a shame that, that this aspect of it is going to linger and, and overshadow at least some some of the moment. And, you know, from a from a personal standpoint, I, when, I, when I wrote about the emotions of feeling for Kershaw and, uh, the, you know, my own transition from being a fan to being a professional, you know, Turner was a guy I, I thought of because he's so fondly regarded in this household. My wife, Emma Spann, calls him the uh, the heavy metal Amish leprechaun, <laughs> you know, which is a nickname that stuck. And writing about him the other day for a piece, this is uh, the piece that I, that I wrote on Monday. Turner is a guy for whom those uh, emotions and that transition from fandom to professionalism, you know, certainly it's, it's, it's along that axis. But I really couldn't write of him in the same terms as Kershaw or, or any of the others there when I wrote that piece, knowing and uh, what I'd just seen. And I did address it towards the end because obviously one has to address it. But yeah, I mean, normally Rob Manfred's speech would be the damper of the evening. But yeah, it was it was the way they handled it and the way it came out during the World Series. It's it seems like baseball and people inside baseball shoot themselves in the foot a lot. And this was just like another example of it. It wasn't that hard to take him out of the game and just have him not come back out of the clubhouse. That's all they had to do. Right. You had one job. Yeah. They weren't charged with curing COVID-19, just not getting other people sick. It's not that unreasonable an ask. Right. Well, let's move away from that. I think we we could flog that horse for longer, but I think we're we're obviously both in agreement there. Going back to the game itself, where were you on on the decision to pull Blake Snell after seventy three pitches? I wasn't a fan of it in the game where uh, God, it was Castillo. I think was pulled in the ALCS. I was in favor of him being pulled there, even if it didn't work, because in those games he had been struggling with his location. The Astros were being incredibly patient with him. He was walking guys. But it wasn't like that last night. All his pitches were located well. They were swinging and missing at his fastball. I felt that he was cruising, and he wasn't at a high pitch count. It's not like they were going to save him for game nine. 
I felt it was a little early. And, you know, Nick Anderson has not been that sharp in the playoffs. It came out from quotes after the game where he was fatigued, but didn't feel like it was his place to tell anybody he was feeling fatigued, which is odd in itself because it's information that people need to know. I understand that, yes, Snell does have big splits from first time through the order and subsequent times. But I think that when he's actually pitching really well, that's less of a big deal than if he were struggling. Yeah, you know, I, I really, I think, was among those who, who thought even view, viewing this from the standpoint of, yes, I would like to see the Dodgers win, ultimately thought this was kind of an outrageous decision and, you know, a, a, a an early Christmas gift to the Dodgers to take him out. You know, he was uh, he was dominant. He was, you know, he had just absolutely shoved. Even when the Dodgers did put a ball in play, a lot of them did nothing. There were a couple that were, I think the exit velocities were below 50 miles an hour. He did have the one hard hit ball, 105 plus miles an hour, uh, the Chris Taylor single, the fir- the only one he'd allowed through the first five innings. And, and you know, Barnes got good wood on the ball when he got that base hit up the middle in the sixth inning. But, you know, I think the important, the important calculus to me and the real X factor is not just should we take out Blake Snell before he faces the top of the order for the third time, but also do we have somebody better in this moment to go with those guys? And, you know, if the answer is Nick Anderson in his regular season form, that is a perfectly valid option. But I think we all know that the that Nick Anderson that we have seen over the last few weeks is not that guy. And, you know, not that not the choice, not a particularly defensible choice. And and the Dodgers, uh, you know, had gotten good looks at him, had dinged him for runs before and they dinged him for runs last night. And it was just enough of, of what they needed to get back into the ball game. And, you know, I, I, I would I would not want to be uh, having to defend that decision, you know, within that clubhouse, uh, even, you know, given that the Rays got this far. You know, at some point, I, I I think you do have to trust the players. You do have to, you know, you, you can go by your eyes. You could see that, yeah, yes, as, as Craig Edwards, for example, pointed out in uh, his little bit that he did for our site, that Snell's velocity in that sixth inning was, was down, even amid the very small sample of pitches that he threw. But you do have to, I think, take a chance with your best. And I just don't think by pulling Blake Snell that the Rays left themselves in a position to take a chance with their best. Yeah, there's a principle in poker. One of the ideas is you're not always going to win every hand, but you want to get as many chips into the pot for your best hand, and you want to win or lose by what happens with your best hand. And I don't think it was the team's best hand here to play. I go back to my uh, preview of the World Series. I said one of the things the Dodgers had to avoid was being too cute, you know, bringing in Kershaw, being very, very clever. But I think that was something that happened last night. I think that it's a move that if it works out, you look like a special genius. But if it doesn't work out, it just looks absolutely terrible because I know people are like, well, the analytics said this, but the analytics don't, you know, declare something. I think that there's a pretty strong statistical case to leave him in the game, given how he was pitching. In the end, it probably didn't make a difference since the Rays never scored. I mean, they just scored the single run against the Dodgers. But you do have to feel bad about the decision. I know that Snell has to feel bad. That's his last game of the season, and that's the one he's going to remember probably the most. Well, he's got to go into the winter wondering, you know, what if, you know, because he was jamming it against them, and, and the Dodgers had no answer for that. I think the most depressing thing I heard someone say about the thing was they said, oh, well, Snell is going to make $11 million next year, so the Rays are probably going to trade him anyway. Ouch. Ouch, 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 ouch. 
you know, getting back getting back to the decision a bit. Yes, you know, the, I think both managers, I think at times were criticized for sticking to the script. The Dodgers, uh, you know, treated both Clayton Kershaw and Walker Bueller with some amount of rigidity, pulling them after 21 hitters, I think it was, in, in, in their three starts within this series, particularly when Kershaw retired his last two batters on two pitches in game five, there were some eyebrows raised. Oh, and it just occurred to me that there's Justin Turner saying, I think he can get this uh, in the uh, uh, the lip reading contest of, for that mound meeting at game five. Funny that, but uh, you know, in general, there's, there's nothing that makes a manager look worse, nothing at all, than pulling a pitcher and then having his choice from the bullpen blow up in his face there's this is a i don't care whether you're going on gut instinct or analytics or you know somewhere on the spectrum in between and i think let's face it most decisions have been on that spectrum for a lot longer than than just the 2020 world series that's just a universal thing you choose the wrong reliever and and things go sideways you're always going to look bad and and there's not a damn thing you can do about it other than say well (laughs) that's baseball yeah i think i think i mean on some level you have to, in the end, make the decision. The statistics that are available, they guide you in the situation. But in the end, if you aren't going to make a decision, then you could have just had it done by a computer. I can have a computer say, remove X picture after 21 batters. If that's what managers should be doing, we wouldn't even really need managers because it would just be autopilot. I was disappointed by the move. And I know Kevin Cash is going to hear about that move for a while. But you just have to actually make the decision to put your best hand out there. And and again, I don't think they did. Yeah, fair enough. What else stood out to you about this World Series? The games were pretty exciting. There were a lot of close games and there was a there was a lot of tension. I talked some about game four in a piece and that it was the most volatile game from a oh, right. probability change standpoint. Yeah, that was amazing. And there were there were other games like that too. It it really felt like the games mattered. There weren't there was no moment where you really felt it was you know, one of those snoozers where everyone's just kind of going through the motions and playing out the game. It it really seemed high tension. And I think part of it is by having the best teams in, in the World Series. You get that kind of, of tension. And that's what really, for me, separates baseball from other sports is you have that moment of tension and that release. Because you go back to the game that Brett Phillips won. Every pitch that Kenley Jansen threw that inning was just full of just stress like overbearing stress, and then it was finally released with the with the hit and the airplane ride. Uh, yeah, it was great stuff. This was definitely one of the better World Series, and and I think it's one I'll remember because there's always some World Series is that I just don't remember the games very much. I don't remember you know the second Marlins World Series. I try to think about those playoffs, and I just don't have very many memories of that. Right. I think another series like that was uh. The Red Sox and the Rockies, it was 4 nothing. None of the games really seemed all that tense. And so I just remember the basic facts about the World Series. But I could, I could tell you every moment of 1986 World Series Game 5. Right. And I think that we had moments in this series that were like that. Yeah, I mean, well, sweeps in general, I think that, you know, they're memorable only to the, the team that wins and their fans and, and uh, maybe, you know, the, with a certain amount of humiliation for the teams that lose and, and, and their fans. I mean, we've had... We've we've had a few sweeps here in the last decade, although it's I guess it's been a while now. The uh, the Giants sweeping the Tigers in 2012, like you said, the the Red Sox and the Rockies in in 07, back to back sweeps in 04 and 05 with the the Red Sox and the and the White Sox, and and then going back 98 99, the Yankees uh, sweeping the Braves and the Padres. 
So we've seen a fair number of them. And I, you know, it depends on your emotional investment. I certainly remember aspects of, of some of those sweeps. I tuned out the uh, the Red Sox series both times because I just did not have any kind of professional obligation to follow them and you know, had spent the time rooting fervently against the Red Sox. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I think it was a compelling World Series. I, I do think, though, that, you know, the, the endless reliever usage kind of wore on me on both sides, you know, wanting to see pitchers that could, you know, that could go six innings on a regular basis, wanting, you know, wanting to see a few more balls in play here and there and fewer strikeouts. You know, I think it, it exposed some of the things, you know, aesthetically about baseball that I that I understand why people find, you know, a little off-putting right now, uh, if not a lot off-putting. That said, you know, the Dodgers, I mean, they they, they had big home runs, but they also had you know, big manufactured runs, particularly those two trips around the bases by Mookie Betts, the one in game one that opened the floodgates and the one in game six that that turned out to be the deciding run. And there was a lot of excitement with that. And boy, I don't know if you can say enough about Mookie Betts. Yeah, I think there was some nice cosmic justice about the whole thing, because (laughs) let's be honest, teams are not going to the wall to maximize just how good their team is. It's, It's all about, you know, the soft cap, which is a soft cap for all intents and purposes, but seeing the Dodgers be more aggressive and acquire bets for a year and then lock him up for, for, you know, the rest of his likely prime was the rest of his usable career. That was really cool. And you kind of want teams to be incentivized to do those kinds of things. I don't think the current financial system really incentivizes teams doing that. So when a team does do that kind of thing, just from like a karmic justice standpoint, it's fun to see them get rewarded with a World Series victory for that because it just wouldn't feel the same if they did all this and say they hadn't signed bets and they lose in the in the NLCS and then they just don't have bets anymore. It, it feels right to me and I, I'm not even a Dodger fan. Sure. No, I, I, I get that. And I, I, you know, I'm like the Dodger fan in me is giggling every time I watch Mookie Betts do something amazing in the field or, or on the bases or, or just some little thing like helping, you know, helping a teammate do something a little bit different in the batter's box or whatever. And the chance to watch him on a daily basis throughout the season and particularly throughout the postseason, it's just like, I don't understand how any team that has Mookie Betts would ever not want to have Mookie Betts. I don't understand how any team that has Mookie Betts could lose, you know, even a game. I mean, just he just always seemed to pull the rabbit out of the hat. And, you know, I know that that's not every – you can't do that every game. And there were there were games in the World Series where he did get held in check. And, and those were games – I think those were exactly aligned with the games that the Dodgers lost. But just a remarkable series for him and capping a remarkable season for him and, and a big middle finger directed at the, at the Red Sox – you know, for the way that they'd handled it. And, you know, it's just, why would you ever not want Mookie Betts on your team? Why would you not just back up all the Brinks trucks that you could muster to keep him on your team? Here's a question for you. Too trollish, not trollish enough, or just the right amount of trollish? <laughs> the Dodgers have, you know, they have wide authority to get rings for people in the organization. What if they got a ring for John Henry? And held Oof. a conference where they announced they got one for him. Uh, that would be that's probably that's probably <laughs> over trolling. the line. That's probably over the line. I could see a playful, uh, you know, a playful uh, 
public gesture between like Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi, you know, given the I know, Dodgers Giants thing with that, the nature of that rivalry and the fact that Farhan left, you know, to take the top job in San Francisco, you know, maybe a little bit of a playful back and forth there. But, uh, you know, the Red Sox are, are, are kind of out of sight, out of mind as far as the Dodgers are concerned. But yeah, it's, it's a, little, a, little, a little too trolly. And I, don't, I think you you probably don't want to uh, poke that particular bear. <laughs> yeah, if I owned a team, I do not think I would be well liked. Yeah, well, you know, you are not for, for universal consumption. I think we all know that. I think we could say the same thing about me. Uh, one need only scroll through either of our Twitter accounts to know that we do not always play nice with others. Twitter, the, the best and worst thing about the internet. Yes, yes, indeed. So how do you feel about Neutral Park, Jay? Because I was first, I hated it, and then I thought it was okay. But after the World Series, I kind of hated again. It felt like there wasn't a lot of character. I mean, yeah, there, I think part of it is the lack of, of a, a huge fan base or a huge crowd, but it just felt almost generic in a way that doesn't seem to work for baseball the same way it works for, say, the Super Bowl. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not a fan of this going forward, I don't think. No, I most definitely, I hate the idea with the, with the heat of a million suns, you know, as far as if Major League Baseball were to try to adopt this as the norm. I understand completely why they needed to, felt they needed to do it this year uh, in order to expedite these games. That said, I'm rather horrified at the fact that they decided to puncture their own bubble by allowing 11,000 fans in. I mean, that is such a drop in the bucket, you know, as, as far as uh, recouping money in the grand scheme of things that it's that it's laughable. And if we could get back to the to Justin Turner thing, you know, Major League Baseball did did a lot to send mixed messages about uh, its own handling. And it does not seem like a complete coincidence that we've broken an eight-week COVID test-free streak at a point when fans were allowed back into games. So that aside, and, you know, Globe Life Field you know, while it's a it's a park that probably has a ways to go in terms of maybe capturing a full personality, you know, by being occupied by fans for a year and seeing what works and what doesn't, the height of the fences, I thought, made for a lot of fun. The number of home run robberies that we saw there during the playoffs and then the home run robberies we saw throughout this postseason in general, I think, added an extra element. The Dodgers were particularly well set up for that once they got to Arlington because both Cody Bellinger and Mookie Betts are fantastic outfielders and you know have great vertical leap and great timing and could bring balls back and that was that was a really cool element that i don't think should be overlooked in all of this but no i i don't ever want to see neutral site world series become a thing i think it is just more of the manfredization of the sport that people will eventually if not quickly grow to despise if it is inflicted upon us on a regular basis so wild guess how normal will a world series look next year next fall well, look, a lot of this is obviously tied up in, in the larger political situation and whether there's a regime change and a more responsible administration coming in and helping to mitigate the current situation. But I would like to think that we'll have a more normal baseball season next year. I don't think it can be completely normal yet until we've got a vaccine. I think there's probably going to be some allowance for fans, but not at full capacity. I think it's reasonable to expect that we might see a shortened schedule in light of the circumstances. Not a not necessarily a sixty game schedule, but maybe not a one hundred sixty two game schedule because there's going to be owners who are 
going to whine about I'm losing money with every game and we're going to see some amount of labor war warring over this but I think we'll you know once it starts happening I think we will see a more normal baseball season and I'm hopeful that we can see you know playoffs taking place in teams home parks and normal travel schedules and you know fewer steps to get through the season in one piece than we've had this year well I'm definitely crossing my fingers because I I would like a normal year after 2020 I think we all would on that note I think we've flogged this particular horse here to our satisfaction so Dan Good to talk to you about this stuff. And for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Always fun, Jay. Thanks for sharing your afternoon with me. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the show and would like to help keep the lights on, consider an ad-free Fangraphs membership for yourself or as a gift. You can even make a simple donation at fangraphs.com donate. Thanks for joining us through this very strange season. We certainly could not have done it without you. We will be back next week with more off-season content. Thank you for listening.